Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's happening, guys? Happy Wednesday! And thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. Coming up on today's show, I'll recap an exciting weekend in combat sports. I'll also tell you about the UFC's most improved fighter and give you some passionate opinions about hamburgers. But before we get there, let's begin with some news that came out of the middleweight division this past weekend. Whitaker was talking about Adesanya and he was referring back to Adesanya's fight with Vittori. So Whitaker said, look, it was very average. And I don't mean average in a negative way. I just mean he's not doing something and offering skills that we haven't seen before. I think that's fair. Of course, that pissed Adesanya off. Adesanya fires right back and says, uh, well, if I'm just average, then what does that make you? Also fair. But timeout. Before you think Whitaker's talking trash, time out just a second and understand. He's getting ready to do something that's very hard. That logic would say he's not going to succeed at. But he's still expected to win. He still expects himself to win. I'm talking about Whitaker here. So he's putting himself in a frame of mind. He's putting himself and he's and he's he's running his mouth when the camera's going, talking, but he's also internalizing. This is important. This is an important step and it's a very positive step that Whitaker has reached this place to start to break down his opponent, break down a former opponent who, by the way, beat him, but start to make things small, start to make things real small, right? There's a lot of steps in doing that. I imagine if Whitaker was here right now, he would probably refer to Adesanya as either the champ. You'd have to correct, hey, don't call him the champ anymore. And he would then start referring to him as Adesanya. And you have to keep on talking to him until he gets to the place when he calls him Izzy. It's a great way mentally to start breaking your opponent down. You don't need to show them these respectful terms. You don't need to start holding them any higher up than they already are. If you're going to take what they have, if you're their equal and you're going to be across from them, start with his name is Izzy. It's, just, it's one of these things, and it might seem small, but this is something very good coming from Whitaker, who, by the way, see, Whitaker versus Adesanya is a, the same discussion as we had when, when it was going to be Adesanya versus Vittori, which is quite simply, who has gotten better? Who has gotten better? And Vittori and Adesanya were so close and so competitive in that first fight that if you could establish who got better, you were probably going to have the winner. The difference in Whitaker and Adesanya is it was a very uncompetitive fight. It was surprisingly uncompetitive. It was right in Whitaker's wheelhouse, right here standing up where he did his finest work. And just turned out Adesanya was a little bit quicker. Adesanya could get to the target a little bit better. But when you are having the discussion of who has gotten better, I think that Whitaker's performance against Gatstelum is really what is most compelling for the fans to see. Because don't forget, Whitaker brought a new weapon out, which was the takedown. And don't forget, he shot four of them. He succeeded at getting three. That's a lot of takedowns. In terms of a accuracy... An accuracy ratio, three out of four? What would have happened if he fired seven or nine 
shots. I mean, just how good is Whitaker about bringing opponents to the ground? And moreover, he was able to hold Kelvin there. Kelvin was surprised. Kelvin was caught off guard. The first takedown, when he got held there, Kelvin worked his way up. And the second and third takedown became harder and harder to get because now Kelvin is prepared and knows, man, this guy might offer a takedown, something he's never done to anybody else. No reason Kelvin should have gone into that and think Robert Whitaker is going to hit a double A. We've never seen him do it. But it is one of these situations where it, Whitaker possesses the skills to make this a different match. That's the exact thing, recipe that I'm spelling out for you. That's exactly what Blahovich did. Not just he took Adesanya down. He offered a takedown when he didn't even offer a takedown on any of his prior opponents. So it had the element of surprise. I just bring it to you because I was reading some comments. That's really what got me here. I was reading some comments on Robert Whitaker saying that Adesanya looked average. This is okay. That's a very positive place. Whitaker start to hone in. He's got to start to zone in. He's got to start to accept what's in front of him, which is a hard fight against a former opponent who in that first fight, it didn't go very well. There's many steps Whitaker's going to need to defeat Adesanya. I'm just reminding you and sharing for you, step one, you can check that one off. And I'll tell you who else is doing a great job. You want to look at this weight class? Anderson Silva. What a success story. In many ways, right? Don't forget, a striker coming over to grappling, coming over to MMA and having success. I mean, Anderson Silva is in very rare company. Throw Anderson in there. You could throw the first guy to ever do it, Marie Smith, in there. You could throw the first girl to ever do it, Holly Holm. And then, of course, you've got Adesanya. But it's just the four of them. So this was a bit of an experiment to take Anderson out of the sport where he gained notoriety and send him in to the sport that he truly loved, which was stand-up and striking. Generally, when a guy gets older, when a guy slows down, when a guy's no longer in his prime, the last thing the guy's going to be good at is boxing. It just moves too quickly. It's too much about speed and timing. It's too much about reflex. Generally, for the fighter that's out of his prime, Anderson looked great. Not to mention the numbers were against him. Youth, that's a real number, was against him. Size. Don't forget that knucklehead Chavez Jr. missed the weight class. The weight class was scheduled to be 182 pounds. And we know as human beings ourselves, we don't get smaller over time. So the fact that Anderson Silva was down at 182, three pounds removed from his title reign at 44 years of age, I mean, there was a lot on that number. What did he have to do to make that number? Did he have to eat better? Did he have to get more workouts in? Did he do both? Did he start eating better while getting more workouts in? Right? I mean, there's something related to that number, and I argue for you, every fighter has a number, but very few fighters ever find out what it is. Right, the promoter's got a contract, and, and, and here's where we go. And sometimes a fighter will change weights, do better up in weights. Sometimes a guy gets pulled down to this catch with 182-pound business. I never knew that Chavez was scared of Anderson Silva. I mean, I would have picked Chavez in this fight. I don't know a ton about his career. I know a lot about his old man's career, but I don't know a ton about his career. I hear about him a lot for being a knucklehead, where he gets caught with the dope or he gets the DUI. I remember, I remember his first big check was $4 million. It was like in his pants, but he went swimming and ruined the check. I mean, do you guys remember these stories? Like, everything I hear about him is for being a knucklehead. But I would think that he's a pretty damn good boxer. And I've seen him in there where he looked a little bit out of shape, but he understood the sport. 
And I remember there was even some back and forth. I want to say Freddie Roach was training him, but he wasn't showing up for workouts. And, you know, they're filming 24-7s or countdowns that day. And so this all gets caught on tape. And the guy's a little bit of a knucklehead, but he's a young guy. Not as though I'm putting him down. He's just a young guy in, in front of the camera. I never thought that Anderson would have had much of a chance with a second-generation guy. I didn't realize Anderson Silva had a chance until I saw the weight class of 182 pounds. That's why I sat back and go, man, this Chavez is a scaredy cat. Why would you ever ask a 44-year-old coming over to a sport that he's never done and that you've done since the day you were born and you're going to ask him to come down in size? Unless you were scared. I would never, ever, ever in a million years welcome somebody to come into my field that they had never done it before. I got the youth advantage. Oh, and by the way, I care what they weigh. I, I couldn't even look myself in the mirror. I'd be ashamed. And this came out the day before. And the only reason it even came out the day before was because Knucklehead missed the weight and had to fork over 10% of the purse, which was $100,000. So I'm looking at it going, my God. This guy is completely unorganized. Six figures, here you go, over two pounds. And it's two pounds, by the way. You know Anderson didn't argue for that weight class. You know Anderson didn't say at 44 years old, let me go lighter than I've ever gone before. Team Knucklehead asked for that. And still failed at it. Look, things are very different. If you ever miss a clause in your contract, but you're the one that asked for the clause, you qualify as a Knucklehead. Okay, so that was the weekend with regards to Izzy Adesanya, Robert Whitaker, and Anderson Silva. But there was also a big fight in the UFC's featherweight division that I just have to give my thoughts on. This is generally the time when Uncle Chael would come and talk to the biggest audience in MMA. And I would give a guy, Korean zombie in this case, his due. I would shine his wheels up. I would say the Chael curse is real. I thought Dan was going to beat you. Talk about how he pushed the pace. Talk about how he went five rounds. All I can think of on that fight was that he called out Max Holloway, who's hurt. There's not a whole lot of rules in fighting, including with the marketing to a fight. You don't call out a guy who's hurt. You don't kick a guy when he's down. You don't call for a fight with a guy who retired. These are misses. And they're tremendous. And I feel like we got to give the zombie some room just because geographically where he lives, maybe he doesn't have the same access to news as we do. In all fairness, it would sh shock me that a former champion of the world, who's the king of the division of which he's about to headline being in the main event, that somebody didn't grab him and let him know that Max was hurt. I mean, it comes back to that old adage, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. What if they go, great, Max is yours. Whenever Max returns, which right now could be May of 2025. I mean, right, you see, you see what I'm saying? How would he not know? He doesn't know that a guy is hurt that's in his own division. If you show stupidity, you are going to lose respect across the board. It's, it's not a whole lot different than calling for fights that you can't get. It doesn't matter if you're the A side or the B side. It does not matter if you're a big star. 
If you call for a fight repeatedly and you don't get that fight repeatedly, you look as though you have no power. And guys with no power don't sell out arenas. So even if you've done nothing wrong and you're actually really good and you're actually really popular, if you're calling for fights and you're not getting them, you're in a bad spot. It's way different if you want to fight somebody and you just can't make those deals behind the scenes. Your people can't call their people. You can't DM one another and just hope that the person's trustworthy and doesn't screenshot it and send it out. you got to be really careful calling for shots that you can't get no matter how good you are because you will look like a fool. I love the whole thing around Deontay Wilder. I'm not a huge Deontay Wilder fan. I mean, in fairness, in the worlds of excuses, he lost to he lost to Tyson Fury, according to him, because he wore a garment, a costume, to the ring that was so heavy that by the time he got to the ring, his legs were shot. I had never heard of an excuse quite that bizarre, and he might be telling the truth. It might be exactly what happened. He is dead set on fighting Fury again. He is not flinching. He's going to beat him. He's not going to wear the costume. I mean, the whole thing is baffling in the very beginning. How did you even have a costume that you never tried on before? How do you know it fit? Like, there must have been a try-on process, right? No bride goes to the wedding and just shows up. Like, it's, she tried the dress on before the big day. It's one of those things. He swears he never had it on. So you're kind of scratching your head going, okay, well, then somebody got this for him. Somebody ordered it for him. Somebody brought this into the building. Oh, which, by the way, there's metal detectors when you came into the back. The thing would have been buzzing. At some point, you're going to see this ridiculous outfit, and you're going to hope that somebody says, hey, Deontay, don't wear it. And if Deontay goes, oh, no, it's going to be really great, man. This thing is going to be awesome. Well, Deontay, anybody that's going to see it would have already bought the show. So no matter how wonderful this is, it actually doesn't help business at all. They'll have already been watching. You guys see the problem? I mean, there was multiple problems with this. But then Joshua and Fury decide they're going to go box. Now, these two guys are acting like little babies over it. And I was so happy. I was so happy to see this spilled milk get spilled right on Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua, because they deserved it. The media is telling us that they're this close to agreeing on a venue. What does it matter where Tyson Fury wants to fight? Why does Anthony Joshua get a say in where the fight is? That is that is ridiculous. And the mere fact that the sport of boxing works that way, to watch them have the rug pulled out on, the rug should have been pulled out. There should never have been all those questions asked. There's a book written, it's called uh, The Paradox of Why. But one thing that no human being wants to deal with is the most powerful word in the world, and that word is why. Nobody wants to deal with it. If you're the decision maker, make the decision. People want to be told what to do. You think Fury, I mean, I'm giving Fury a hard time. You think he wanted to pick what hotel they were at? Sounds like the promoter's job. You think he wanted to pick how big the ring was, 17 or 19 or 21, because all of them are available. And, you know, this guy's a, he moves, he moves less rocks, but his hook is with more power. Fury doesn't want to pick. Not to mention he shouldn't be asked in the first place. Not to mention what his wishes are. Who gives a damn? Put on the gloves, try to hit that guy. He's going to do the same to you. 36 minutes later, if anybody's still awake, we'll tell him who the winner was. Oh, and by the way, financially, there's going to be a great incentive for you to do it. Uh, where do I sign? So, but this was great because Deontay Wilder, who I'm not a fan of, I am a fan now, wanted to fight Fury so bad. Joshua never wanted to fight Fury. N Joshua never wanted that fight. He's ducked that fight. He doesn't want to fight him now. Wilder really does. 
And Wilder even took him to court. And Wilder says, I have a clause in this contract which says you offer me a rematch before that guy, meaning Fury, gets to do anything else, and he did not offer it to me. So offer it. So Bob Arum tried to get cutesy with it and booked a venue that day. As soon as he lost an arbitration, Bob, the first venue he could get, assuming that Deontay would go, come on, man, that's not enough time to prepare for somebody like Tyson Fury. Wilder did not say that. Wilder said, send it over. I'll sign the contract. I'll see you all in four weeks. I'm going to beat his ass. Now, that's between Tyson Fury and Deontay. There was nothing that I've seen from Deontay Wilder that makes me believe that he could beat Tyson Fury, but that's between them. Who am I to say? I could tell you all about what happened when they fought. Who am I to possibly say what's going to happen next time they fight? That's between them. And I will acknowledge Fury's got no problem being there. You all have to acknowledge that Deontay wants to be there. And whether you like it or not, your boy Joshua couldn't be happier that he doesn't have to be there. Well, before going off on that tangent, I was talking about the Korean Zombie and Max Holloway. And as most of you remember, Max Holloway was supposed to fight this man in 2018, but it never happened. Khabib Nurmagomedov came out and he said, I have no desire to come back. I am all done fighting. And you know, I'm a little sick of him being so wishy-washy, right? I'm a little sick of the, the mixed messages by Khabib. <laughs> Come on, guys. He, this guy couldn't have been more clear. This might be the clearest speaking fighter with the clearest statement of all time. He has never hedged. Remember all the meetings about meetings and all the talking about talking and, hey, we're going to meet over here to set up a meeting over here. I mean, remember all of these things? Khabib never gave us any hope. He never dangled. He never did it for attention. And there's something that's very cool about that. There's something that's very appropriate about the way that Khabib did it so that everybody can have closure and move on. Because you're being a bit of a, of a jerk to the rest of the guys in the division who are trying to get on with the belt and get on with things. If you're dangling, you're going to come back. I mean, we've seen this. Blahovich just went through it, thought he had to call out John Jones and you know, make that whole thing right. You guys might remember when St. Pierre retired from 185 pounds, his, the real retirement. That was a really cool move. And people pushed back on George. They thought it was dirty that he came in, did one fight, grabbed the belt. What would have been dirty is if George would have done what George had the right to do, which is sit for 12 months. It could have been an injury. It could have been a contract dispute. He could have done all of the, the magazines and the photo shoots with two different belts, champ, champ. His endorsements and sponsorships would have gone up. It would have been selfish. He never would have come back, he never would have fought, and he would have held up an entire division, an entire locker room that had the same dream as George, that wanted to be able to be motivated and get on with it. Some guys that were in their prime, and he didn't do it. He took eight days, one week, gave the belt back. George should have been credited for it, and in truth, so should Khabib. Khabib has never hedged. And what is this where when a guy wants to stop, we want him to come back? And when a guy doesn't want him to stop, we want him to retire. Like, from a psychological standpoint, what is that inside of us as fans? This guy should stop, man. His best, his best days are behind him. He needs to get out of there. And then a guy that, that, that wants to walk away on top, which is very odd, nobody goes out on top. Lennox Lewis and George St. Pierre, the only fighters to go out on top. And now you have to say Khabib. Everybody stays in there too long. Everybody's career ends the same way, which is face down and embarrassed. 
That's the way that it goes. It's a hard thing to let go of. And you want to squeeze that until all the juice is out. That It's not wrong. It's very common. It's the way it goes. What's wrong with a guy going out on top? What's wrong with a guy going out on his terms? It's something that really should be celebrated because it's so incredibly rare to do in combat. I just saw Peace John Smith, most decorated wrestler of all time, but he was talking about getting ready for the 1992 Olympics, and he had no interest in winning the Olympics. He was already Olympic and world champion, hadn't lost in five years going to this thing, made this number six. He had no interest or motivation to win it. His motivation was to finish his career on top, not having to look bad, not having regret, not thinking I stayed in here too long. It was a real thing, and it drove him, and he went and said history. I only share for you, when a guy is able to do that, it's a good thing. And I don't know why we're asking guys to come back. I'm seeing this with Weidman right now. And I don't know how to assess it. I don't know how to advise you. If if we like Weidman and we want to serve Weidman, then I understand the side of it where we go along in whatever direction he wants to go. If we like him, then we want him to get what it is he wants. In this case, it's a, it's, it's a return. The other side of the coin is for what? He's got a ton of memories. He'll be in the Hall of Fame someday. He's a world champion. He stopped the greatest of all time. I mean, the Weidman story is flat impressive. He changed weight classes. He sold out arenas. He's been a marquee fighter. It's impressive. He extended his career. He was an All-American and a national team member before any of this. A lot of you may not even know that. The guy's been a success his entire life. Why does he have to come back from a compound fracture? I read an interview this morning by Weidman talking about blood flow to where they put all the pins and the pieces. If he doesn't get blood flow, they will have to amputate his leg. I mean, he's dealing with something very serious. Why does he need to return? At the same time, who am I to choose or hope against the choices and hopes of a guy who is willing to overcome all of that? It's an amazing story. But I am looking around going, why are we doing it? He's a smart guy. He's going to stay in the sport for a long time. He's damn good at calling fights. He's a good-looking guy. He's got a beautiful gym. He's going to be in the corner of title contenders and, and world champion, he's going to be involved in the sport. He's going to have a whole other chapter that he's going to be able to write as a trainer. Does he really need to come back? It's one of those, right? Puts me in a hard spot. Who am I to say? I'm his friend. Who am I to say that my wishes are opposite of what his wishes are? Oh, by the way, with the obstacles and hurdles that are now now added, that's a cool story, man. That's amazing. He comes back and does this. That's an amazing story. And Weidman and Anderson had a talk last week. Weidman's got a podcast he started. He has Anderson Silva on. And Weidman apologized to Anderson for breaking his leg. I don't know the context of that. I read this piece. I I, I don't know what came before or what came after it. Because it's one of those things of, why are you apologizing? We're both in there. We've agreed we're going to try to damage each other. It's actually the number one clause the judges have to look for. Damage. A pretty aggressive word, in fairness. A pretty, ugh, word, but it's the agreement. Like, where is it? Do you have to apologize for breaking a guy's nose? Do you have to apologize for blacking in a guy's eye? I mean, it's what we're there to do. So, I only share that with you because 
Anderson went through it. And I imagine Weidman's looking at Anderson, who just had an incredible upset, and he's probably inspired by him. It's probably the reason he had him on. He probably had a conversation with Anderson off camera that we didn't all hear about where he said, man, what do I, what do I have to go through? Tell me how to get through this. So you just listened to me speak about some of the biggest stars in combat sports like Chris Weidman, Khabib, and Anderson Silva. And you might not want to hear this, but Jake Paul is another guy that is a star in combat sports, and he's back in the news this week. Jake Paul says that he's going to drag Tyron Woodley into deep waters. He said, let's see how well he can swim. Now, when you hear the term deep waters, I don't know where this this came along. We're going to take a guy late into the fight, get him tired, and make him quit. Somebody somewhere along the way came up with the, the term deep waters. Okay. That's an interesting claim. I mean, it takes years. It takes years and years to build up that kind of stamina to be able to physically break another man. Not to beat him, not to beat him up, not to hurt him, to physically break him, to get him so exhausted that he quits. It's called weaponizing pace. A few athletes have been able to do it. It it dates back to a guy named Dan Gable in 1972 that showed the whole world if you can get your opponent tired, you can make a coward out of him. It doesn't now matter who's better. If he's exhausted and you're not, you can win. Randy Couture did it. George St. Pierre did it. Khabib put a pace on people. But I offer you those names because I have to spread them out that far. It's a very uncommon thing to do. Both guys can generally hold up. And for Paul to come out and make this claim, as youthful as he is, I mean, it takes years, truly years, of building up your lactic acids. Like, you'll hear about training camps. Guys that only train in training camps suck. None of them are any good. None of them go anywhere. You can't get anything done in 8 to 10 weeks. You can sharpen it. You can go through a peaking process. You can enhance and focus on it. You can't get anything done in eight to 10 weeks, no matter what you sacrifice. So I only bring that to you because it's a big claim by Paul, but it's also an interesting way to make things happen. Look, hold this thought, tie it in with Connor, okay? Connor Poirier part two, what was different? And don't tell me about the punches and the kicks or the little calf kicks. What was different was the approach to the fight where Connor was still out on this PR tour and trying to look like the nice guy in front of the world. Now. When you talk trash, it does a couple of things. The public will believe that you're trying to get into your opponent's head. And some guys are so mentally weak, the public might be right. There might be fighters that are so weak out there, regardless of their level of success, that you can frustrate them. What good does that do, you might ask? I'll tell you. If you can frustrate a guy, it's very similar to who's got more pressure on them. You hear these questions, but then the sports announcer never tells you why it matters. Why it matters if you're in somebody's head, quote-unquote, or who has the pressure. It creates a fatigue. It makes you tired faster. There's an actual chemical release in your brain, and it will get your body tired if you're the one that cares more or if you're the one that has more pressure or if the opponent is in your head, just so you understand this. What's really happening when a fighter's talking trash is he's building himself up. That's the part that isn't seen. You think he's out there trying to sell tickets or talk his way into opportunities or get into your opponent's head. You're not wrong. That's a piece of it. But what's really happening when you're out there saying, I am the greatest, 
I am the best. No one can beat me. I'm the greatest of all time. And it goes in that order. You'll slowly pick it up. You'll start with, I deserve main events. I can fight for a world championship. I can even beat this guy. You'll, you'll keep going. And the reason it goes in that order is because you, as the author of the statement, don't believe it. You're uncomfortable saying it. You don't even feel right. I remember the first, I remember where I was. I remember where I was and what I was driving the first time I told a guy who was a reporter, I'm the greatest to have ever done it. And I remember after it left my mouth, I paused, waiting for him to either laugh or dispute it. And I remember when he didn't, I remember thinking, why didn't he dispute that? I'm not the greatest of all time. And so I kept saying it. And slowly I believed it. It became a real thing. I started training differently. It wasn't just a mental approach. I started training differently. I was given this advice as a kid because there was a guy named Dave Schultz, who's a very famous wrestler. And Dave wrote a note to himself and he stuck it on his mirror that he brushed his teeth in every morning so that he had to see it every day. And it didn't say, I'm going to be the Olympic champion. He said, I am the Olympic champion. And he saw it every single day. And he did this as a boy. He was 14 or 15 years old. But he began to believe it. And he also began to prepare like an Olympic champion. And as weird as it felt the day that he wrote it, as much as he didn't believe it, day after day of seeing it, not only did he believe it, he expected it. And he went on and he became the Olympic champion. And I was given this advice when I was a kid. Doug Samron, one of my coaches, who knew and was friends with the Schultz brothers, told me that this is what they did. And he told me to do it. I never did it. I never one day wrote that down. I never one day tore that sheet. I never one day taped that on the mirror. And it wasn't because I didn't have paper or a pen or scotch tape. It's because I didn't believe it. I would have felt silly doing that. What if somebody came in and saw that I did that? I only bring that to you because later in my life when I started to do it, I did believe it. And I believe that Conor McGregor went through the same thing. I believe when everybody thought he was out there being an entertainer or he's trying to get in Jose Aldo's head, I don't think that that's what was motivating him. I believe Conor was like me where he started making these claims, but then he started to notice how saying those things out loud affected him inside and also how it affected his training. And it affected his discipline. It affected his work ethic. I believe Connor wasn't trying to talk Jose Aldo or Floyd Mayweather out of something. He was trying to talk himself into something. And I believe he succeeded. Connor McGregor had no, he's a, he's a guy from Ireland with a damn good left hand. So what? He's got no business stopping Chad Mendes' takedowns or getting up and scrambling off the bottom when Chad Mendes is on top of him. But he did it. He's got no business being in there in a sport with Floyd Mayweather that he's never done before and Floyd's never lost it, but he did it. And he did it very well. And that's one of the sides to the positive talk that when Connor started the, the PR tour and he quit doing those things, he quit being brash, it wasn't just a letdown from us fans that enjoy that commodity that Connor brings to the table, that enjoy the entertainment, he also stopped putting that pressure on himself. And I'm not sure from a psychological standpoint that Connor understands that was the difference in the second Poirier fight. It was the approach. He got into the ring as though he was above Poirier, and I'm sure he felt that way. He'd already dusted Poirier. It wasn't a close contest. At no part in that first fight was Connor ever in trouble, and it was a pretty short night.
But it was also a meaningful difference whether Connor's aware of it or not. Saying some of those things isn't just good for ticket sales. Saying those things isn't good just to get your opponent to second guess it. Saying those things is what gets you ready to go out and act on it. And I'll be very curious what Connor's approach is. I haven't seen or heard a lot of Connor leading into this Poirier fight. And it's only a couple of weeks away. I haven't seen a lot of stuff. Maybe that's part of Connor's plan. Lay low, put my head down, get the job done. Maybe. But I don't know that I'll like that any more than I liked nice Connor. There's a certain edge that certain fighters have. There's a certain anger and a certain hostility that they bring to the ring. It's the very reason that they coined the phrase, a rich man can't fight. Because he generally isn't angry. He's generally having a pretty good day. He generally doesn't have that edge. And I think that it's very relevant whether Connor finds it or not. Look, the Connor Poirier fight is not what you guys saw. And the fans wanted to understand this. But every fighter did. That fight was over three minutes in. At three minutes into that fight, Connor was looking for the door. He just couldn't find it. He was looking to get out of that fight. And the reason every fighter could recognize it is because we've all done it and we're all ashamed of it. But there, there is a look that a fighter has. I will tell you, there was a day when Conor McGregor, whether it was true or not, never would admit that a calf kick hurt, right? I will never say those words to you. You kicked me in a soft muscle in the back of my leg, and therefore I lost an ass-whipping contest. Whether it was true or not, you'd never get me to cop to it. And there was a time you'd have never got Conor to cop to it. And the narrative and story of that fight of how great these calf kicks are, look, man, it's a weapon amongst many. It's not like some great weapon. Conor found himself in a fight that was harder than Conor thought it was going to be against a guy whose ass Conor had already whipped. Those are the things that started to play the mental game. That's where Conor thought, land this big punch. Let's make it all look good and let's go home. I got to get out of here. He went into panic mode. It's one of these things where if you admit that ahead of time, that panic mode and that fear, that adversity that you deal with loses its power. I will be very curious as to what the approach, from a media standpoint, Connor takes going in to Poirier Part 3. Okay, before I give you my thoughts on Matt Brown and hamburgers, I want to tell you about a guy that I think is in serious contention for the UFC's most improved fighter. Fighter of the year, most improved fighter, rather, has got to go to Blahal Muhammad. And I'm not talking about his skills. I'm talking about a guy who has become a character, who has become interesting, who makes the right moves. I didn't know what a Blahal Muhammad was a year ago. And by the way, neither did you guys. He's been around. He's been fighting well. Nothing wrong with Blahal. He just wasn't interesting. For whatever reason, his story just wasn't out there. He wasn't calling the right shots. He wasn't getting the right opportunities. And what he has quickly found is you're going to get a lot of the shots that you go for, right? I mean, it's the old Wayne Gretzky, but in, in reverse. Wayne Gretzky coined the phrase, you miss every shot you don't take. Well, in this situation, Blahal's calling for some shots, and he's getting His name is out there. He's now a main event fighter. Like it or not, he fought in a main event against Leon. He gets poked in the eye, so now he has to hate Leon. Okay, fine. So Blahal comes out today and said of Leon, said you lost more fans than you gained in that Nate Diaz fight. Then Gilbert Burns came on the back of that and said that Leon 
did not look hungry enough against Nate to get himself a title shot. Now, I think that as it pertains to Blahal, I think he's just smart. I think he just knows how to insert himself. He did an interview, same one I'm talking about, and somewhere in this interview he said, I hate Colby Covington. Hate's a strong word. I don't know of an emotion stronger than hate. I mean, it's strong enough that my mother told me don't ever say it because it's never true. You'll never actually hate somebody. I, I only share with you, he knows how to get himself out there right now. He knows how to make himself interesting. He's never shooting below himself. He's only shooting up. It's a rule in politics. Governor will go after the president. President doesn't go after the governor. You're, you're beneath me. Well, Bahal's following that. He's only going after people higher on the ladder. I want to tie that into what Gilbert Burns said, though. Is that a fair criticism that Leon didn't look hungry enough? Because you will always be subject to one of the two. You'll always be subject that, in this case, the, the word is hungry. You didn't look hungry enough. You didn't go out and finish the fight. Or you'll get what I viewed as a compliment to Leon that he stayed composed. He had ice going through his veins. I was most impressed with Leon in his post-fight interview that he said it as calmly as I'm speaking to you now. We believed that he would wear down in the fourth and fifth round, and not because we think he's out of shape. We just know what great cardio Nate's going to bring to the table. It didn't happen. Leon held up, pat on the back. Leon was hurt. He found a way to survive. You can look at that and say that he was hurt, or you can say it the way I said it which is that he recomposed, found a way to move on, and then he did an interview like he wasn't even breathing. There's two guys that we hate in this sport, okay? Curtis Blades and Leon. I just don't know why. I've never known what Curtis did to the community other than go out there and do the hardest possible fights, and Gano twice... John Jones won't fight Engano once. I mean, just to put in perspective, right? This isn't Tiege. John, Engano's flat scary. There's all sorts of guys in this sport. You can say, well, this guy's really good, or this guy's really fast, or this guy. There's one guy that's the scariest guy. It's Engano. And if you back the tape up, there was no one for years. And prior to that, it was Cain Velasquez. I mean, there's only a couple of guys that have ever come through that are scary. It's actually that Curtis goes out and fights him twice and is, is campaigning to try to fight him a third time. That's the kind of guy you generally really like. Leon has taken every opportunity that he can get. Oh, by the way, they say you're supposed to win your fights. He's won them all over the last five years. And now we're saying he wasn't hungry enough. I mean, you got to choose. Mike Tyson had said, and I'll, I'll never forget it because he's the first that I heard say it, but he's very right. If you look for a finish, you're not going to win a decision. If you look for a knockout, if you try to put that guy away and you fail and it goes to the cards, you're not going to win it. Now, why? Why is real easy. It takes a ton of energy. You're taking a big risk. When you see an opening and you go for it, you can leave a hero or you will be exhausted. And you won't be able to go on another flurry or another sprint or protect yourself two rounds later. It's true. It's accurate. You guys might remember Connor Diaz versus Connor McGregor versus Nate Diaz. And when Connor lost part one, and when Connor lost, he said, I was not efficient with my energy. That's true. That was a fair assessment. But he's speaking to Mike Tyson's point that Connor went for the finish. He tried to get Nate out of there, which is why as the fight went on, 
the tides turned. I only bring it to you because are we, are we just looking for things to pick on Leon? Like, is there anything Leon can do where he go, hey man, by the way, good job. Is there anything that's even on the table? Because if we're not going to assess him and be fair, what's the point? Like, what is the point of it? I am well aware that we are going to fiercely adhere to the rules that we make up on the spot. But can, can we also agree that there's some level when we're a fan, like there's some code that we have to follow? Gilbert does not have to follow it. Gilbert is a fighter within the division who's trying to get an opportunity and stay above Leon in the rankings. He does not have to adhere to these things. But we do. Lahal Mohammed and many other guys in the welterweight division are hungry for UFC gold. And before I head out for today, I want to tell you all about Matt Brown's last win over the weekend and why it makes me think about hamburgers. A word of caution, you might get a little hungry while listening to this. Matt Brown. I mean, is he living up to the moniker immortal or what? Matt Brown has quietly surpassed 40 years old. And Matt Brown is still beating people. Matt Brown said he would love to be Damian Maya's retirement fight. Now, we might be revisiting something here that just isn't true, right? I don't know what Maya really wants to do. I don't know where Maya's head is really at. I reached out to Maya personally about a grappling opportunity. He couldn't have been any politer, but put me in contact with his manager, right? If you if, if I ask you, if I come to you for, for a grappling match, you talk to me. If you ask me to go somewhere else, it's the same thing as saying I don't want to do it. So I don't know where Maya actually stands in his heart. But that's not a bad call out. You know, Matt Brown was then even associating himself with the Diaz brothers. I like that. I like some of these guys that I still want to see fight who maybe aren't as fast as they uh, they once were, but they've done enough that they've still got a place. They, they've still got a place. I will tell you guys, and this might surprise you, you want to know who the greatest guest I have ever had on this program is the greatest guest I have ever had is Matt Brown. And I remember the day that I was going to talk to him. I remember seeing that on the calendar go, God, great. What are we going to talk about? This is going to be like pulling teeth. Matt Brown doesn't have an opinion on anything. Matt Brown doesn't say two words wrong. Matt Brown had one of the best personalities. He had one of the best sense of humors. He had, he had so many opinions. We had to run the show late because we were just going back and forth so much. I only bring that to you because I think that Matt Brown has a lot of opportunities out there in this sport that maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't even know what an interesting and fun guy he is. I was watching the Brown fight, and Brown fought Lima. And I'm watching on my smartphone, and I'm having a hamburger. I'm Now, I look at myself as a real connoisseur of hamburgers. There was a period of time where every single Sunday, my mom and I would go to a different place to try their hamburger. But we would also investigate during the week. We would look them up and then something along called Yelp or so and so says this is a good place. So I started doing that even when I started traveling. When I started going on the road a lot, I would do the same thing. I would look up the best hamburger and I would go try it. And I've been burnt a few times. Like, people's opinions on hamburgers, I, I don't think that every, just everybody should be welcome to their opinion. I, I really don't. There are certain rules of a hamburger, right? And you have to show respect all the way down the line is who is the hamburger created for? The hamburger is created for the guy who worked hard all day, wants to get something to eat before he goes home and turns the game on. 
And before you go, well, Chael, I love hamburgers, and that's not a fair stigma. I've never done any of those things. Or my kids love them, and they're eight-year-old. I'm not saying you can't still enjoy it. I'm saying the crafter of the burger has to keep that person in mind. I went to the burger bar in Las Vegas inside the Mandalay Bay, which holds a number nine national ranking. The only way the burger bar, which is disgusting, got on ranked anyway is if like the publisher's dad owned the place or vice versa. There was home cooking. I had my after party there. After party means you have a fight and you're picking up you're picking up the tab, but you, you invite some people to come with you. We got about 12, 11, 13 people. It comes to me to order, and I said, I'll have whatever's most popular. Now, I said that for two reasons. One, I knew they were ranked number nine in the country. And two, I thought it was a cool thing to say. Oh, bring me whatever's most popular. I thought it was a cool thing to say. Apparently, the waitress did not, because there's no part of me to this day that believes she brought me what was most popular. It was on that bun what do they call it? A, a brochet, a brochet bun. You know, you know the one I'm talking about. Brochet, spinach, sautéed spinach, and goat cheese. It was disgusting. And she must have thought when I was trying to take the cool guy attitude of just bring me whatever's most popular. She must have thought I'm I'm going to shove this in this guy's face and he'll never do that again. That's disgusting. And you never had the guy coming from job site want to get a bite to eat that's affordable before he goes and flips on the Dodgers game in mind. You never did. So when I go and I sit down, I'm watching the Brown fight and I order this burger. First off, it comes out on a homemade bun. I mean, red flag number one. If you were better at making a hamburger bun than Franz, which is a $100 million company who only makes hamburger buns, okay, if you, if you are better at that, close the doors to the restaurant and just go compete against Franz. There's a reason they sell hundreds of millions of dollars worth of buns because they're good at making buns. So it was weird right from the jump that this piece of bread was crafted in the back. Secondly, you never, and this is a never put on red onion. If a guy likes red onion, and those guys do exist, that is reserved for a backyard barbecue. When you're the one flipping the burgers and you chop them up and you put that on, on the plate, and then when people come down the assembly line, if they choose to, red onion is very offensive. You always use a white onion. If you just have to use a Walla Walla sweet or a yellow, go ahead. You never put a red onion on. These aren't just Chael's rules, okay? I'm out here in Oregon. We have a top 10 ranking for burgers. There's also a national ranking for hamburgers. And guess what? Neither of them will allow on their list a red onion. Have you guys heard of Killer Burger? Killer Burger sells a lot of hamburgers. They're definitely not bad. They did not make the top 10 list. They made honorable mention with a notation. Do you know what the notation said? Red onion. Nobody serves a red onion. Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King, in and out You go through it any way you want to do it. There's a reason you don't serve that. You want to know what else you don't do that this place decided to do? That I'm Well, I'm watching the Matt Brown fight, but I'm gagging on this burger, and it's in my hometown, of which I would never act like a jerk, right? In my hometown, everybody's getting tipped. Highs, hellos, thank yous, and goodbyes. They put on a sweet butter pickle. Now, you're going to have friends that like sweet butter pickles, that like those more than dills, right? Get a bunch of friends together and go, hey, who prefers a sweet butter to a dill? So you'll have hands go up, but it's not going to be your cool friend. It's going to be your friend that at some point in his life, and maybe right now, has a purple streak in his hair, right? I mean, you know the guy, but you don't put on a sweet butter pickle. You serve dills. They not only put a sweet butter, they put it about a half an inch thick. 
you cut a pickle real thin. So now I've got an overwhelming offensive pickle to drown out the taste of an overwhelming offensive onion that never should have been there before I get to the home run, which is the lettuce. Don't ever get cutesy on a cheeseburger because you're showing that you don't respect the hardworking guy who stops off for something to eat before he goes and turns the game on. If you're going to use lettuce, you use iceberg. Why do you use iceberg? Because it looks fresh and it has crunch. No lettuce in the world offers a taste. It offers a texture. Even if you're using the cheapest one on the shelf that you can cut, looks fresh, gives texture, and shows that you have respect. And there's some guys that are burger guys. There's plenty of restaurants that make, that they're just disgusting. They just don't understand what they're doing. I ended up in this gym. Let me hear a spot I ended up in. I'm sitting at a Hooters convention. Okay, Kenny Florin and I get brought in to be judges of a Hooters pageant. So I'm literally having dinner, big fancy restaurant with the CEO, COO, the CFO, all, all the executives. And they begin to ask Kenny and I what we think of their restaurant. Now, there's some times in life, okay, where, you know, the truth just isn't going to serve you well. It's very tough when you're sitting with these executives of Hooters to tell them the truth, which is you don't understand a wing and you don't respect it. That's the truth. 90% of the time I go to your restaurant, you guys are overworked. The wings come out. They're a little bit frozen, quite frankly. And secondly, if you ever meet a guy that tells you that dip is for someone that doesn't understand a wing, you just talked about 1% of wing eaters. It's all in the dip. All of it's in the dip. It's why Buffalo Wild Wing comes out with 30 different flavors and they're still in business. It's all in the dip. I used to go to Hooters and they would bring you, if you want either a ranch or a blue cheese, they would bring it to you with like a Paul Newman's and it was a reduced fat, but it was already in the container. Like clearly they they bought it from Paul and Paul dropped it off and they took it in the fridge and threw it on your table. But now you're showing a lack of respect. If you're going to serve ranch and you clearly don't want your customer to have it, at least make it there yourself. And why would you give a reduced fat? Who, who are you to tell me what my fat take should be? So it was one of these tough spots when these guys asked the question where, you know, you're looking down a little bit. Hey, Kenny, you, Kenny, tell them. Tell, tell them how good their, their frozen wings with fat-free ranch is. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. We got a lot of good reviews on Apple Podcasts last week, like this one from TD, who says, Chael is my spirit animal. Well, thank you, TD. I'm going to look that up to find out what it means, but it seems like a compliment, and I'm going to do that before I'm back here on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you, TD, are welcome. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.